0: Hello out there. Yes, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the None But the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, so we thought we'd have an archive to discuss, but not the case.
1: No such luck. Uh, I mean, they were they would have been on schedule, but uh, minor production problem, whatever that means. Whatever that's a euphemism for.
0: <laughs> yes. So we'll cover the new archive in the season finale, which is coming up in a couple of weeks.
1: Yes, and I look forward to to really digging into whatever show it is and hopefully having a very intelligent conversation about
0: it. Right, so, and you have no insight. I
1: have no insight whatsoever.
0: Okay, then I think we should discuss the other tidbit of news we have this week, and that is Bruce was spotted in Asbury Park doing a photo shoot with Danny Clinch. Now, anytime a photo shoot is conducted, I think it's evidence of something coming. Certainly, they weren't shooting photos in the middle of a pandemic for no reason
1: <laughs> yeah i get the feeling that something's coming i don't know exactly what it is obviously we have we've had high hopes so to speak for uh, for tracks too but
0: well they were also working on a new album as we've discussed before which we had heard was pretty far along
1: yeah yes they recorded recorded that one late last year
0: so Now, interestingly, when Stan was on with us the last time, I did ask him, he said he didn't think a new record would be released until they could tour, which is a sensible thought. You did not really get in on that. What was your feeling on that?
1: Well, the question would be if it's something that he feels is timely and he can get out. Um, You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's something related to the election, but we'll, we'll just have to see. I mean, we kind of assume that yes the album would be held until they can tour and thus we'd hopefully get tracks to this year but that's that's just speculation and conjecture on our part so maybe, maybe with, with some wishful thinking thrown in so we'll just have to we'll just have to see what happens as they yes say. we
0: will although either one obviously would be very exciting
1: <laughs> that is true we want some
0: new bruce music that would yeah, save so, this year save so. the year
1: bruce please god we need something to save it don't we
0: Oh, we certainly do. Uh, Really. And fortunately, we have had some extra entertainment from Bruce via his E Street radio show, From My Home to Yours. And the ninth episode recently arrived. It was entitled Rumble Doll, and it featured Bruce and a very special guest, his lovely wife, Patty Scialfa. I thought this was... It was really sweet. What did you think?
1: Yes, it was. With uh, with Patty joining them in in the uh, in the DJ booth, I guess you could say, uh, they really talked a lot about her, about her music, about her albums, and certainly the various influences that influenced her.
0: Well, even more than that, I think what we really got was a a view into their relationship it was incredibly intimate we've talked about this a little bit before some of the other things he's done recently they bruce seems and in this case patty along with him much more willing to allow that kind of inside sort of look at at what's going on in in their house and and in their relationship it was it was really quite touching
1: it was and uh, it's almost got to the point where bruce was uh, willing to let little too much information out yes
0: <laughs> which you is
1: know, you know very very unusual for him you know it, talking about uh going to patty's apartment in the city prior to the tunnel of love tour and me rehearsing her her guitar part so
0: yeah um, and that was seemed that to be implying little, that he wasn't really there to rehearse yeah
1: exactly i guess he in the in this book is funny in this book he never really said when that happened when when their first time uh when they really really hit it off in that way was but this one, he kind of gave a little bit of a hint here.
0: And, and she seemed to go along with it. You would have thought at some point <laughs> she was like, well, maybe we shouldn't talk about this or whatever. But they were they were very open. And, and the way it came out also in the context of her music uh, and the way she had written much of Rumble Doll, which, of course, we knew was about him. But just to hear them talking about it was was really quite amazing.
1: It really was. Uh, when she 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 said that she described Rumble Doll as basically a, a love letter to Bruce, and his reaction was, "Well," and then and then and then he he kept going on to the next topic, which I thought was pretty funny, uh, especially when you consider that you know I, the way I look at it, the first or first album Rumble Doll is a love letter to him, and then Play It As It Lays is a not so love letter to him.
0: To me, uh, the other thing about it was, and we talked about this in the last episode. When it, two people are talking like that, we got that from the South Side and the Steve episode when it was the three of them. There's such a deep connection and a deep relationship there. It, it kind of remo- made me think, you know, when I came to you and I said, oh, I think we should do a podcast. What was the first thing I said? We, we need to sort of capture our real life conversations. Mm-hmm. And, yes, and that is, I think, what we got from them here. And that's what made it so compelling.
1: You're you're exactly right. They were very comfortable talking to each other, and I mean, I, to be honest, I'm not willing to go as far as to say this was a, a glimpse into the relationship, uh, but it certainly they were certainly very comfortable. They were having an easy conversation, um, and they certainly share a lot of the same influences. They were talking yes. about Wanda Jackson and Al Green, uh, certainly the Ronettes, um, Darlene love, darling. Well, she wasn't mentioned on in this re, on on the show. Uh, That's true. I, they played the Icon Tina version of River Deep Mountain High. And then, of course, Sean Poole, though, well, they said, um, Bruce and Patty said it was one of the greatest vocals of all time.
0: I and, saw that on Backstreet that, that, yeah. that they wrote that, yeah.
1: Yeah, and then Sean Poole came back and said, ah, I don't know, Darlene Love does a pretty good job. And i got to agree with him. Um,
0: I, I was would probably be- go with Tina, but that's just me.
1: <laughs> well, I think there's an argument to be made either way. But it was... They talked about the, the breakdown and like any woman would. And they then they compared it to the Al Green song, So Tired of Being Alone. So the, the influences really came
0: out. They really did. And and I think when they got to the end and Bruce called it her, her masterpiece and he was referring to Spanish Dancer and, and what he said there, uh, when I pass away, just take these lyrics and <laughs> slap them on my headstone. That's all they need to know about me. And, you know, in a way, I, I'm sure he was being somewhat, joking but really not so much perhaps Ah, well
1: as i as i said a few minutes ago the this the album is basically about him
0: (laughs) and that is her best song that that's a brilliant song
1: i I would go with rumble doll but oh you would yes Um, i like spanish dancer another another thing i want to point out is and this i didn't get this at the time and i don't know why except maybe i was just an idiot um mike campbell produced much of rumble doll yes that is i didn't and I didn't realize how much "Lucky Girl" sounded exactly like a Tom Petty song. That's it what sounded... I was—I
0: was going was to say. Did you not hear the record? I mean, "Lucky Girl" did sound exactly like a Petty song. Well,
1: I didn't hear that until I listened last uh, last week when, I, when when it aired, and I'm like, this sound this is almost exactly like "Full Moon Fever," like 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 "Free Falling." So, uh, like I said, I was maybe I was an idiot for ignoring that all those years, but I, I, really, I... I really heard it this time.
0: And they also broke some news. They played a new song, You're a Big Girl Now, which they said would be on her forthcoming record, which I guess is (laughs) being produced by Mr. Ron Aniello.
1: Right. Of course, uh, if you if you read the uh, the playbill for Bruce on Broadway, uh, that album has been coming for a long time. So I'm not holding holding my breath.
0: Probably a good idea, (laughs) but I hope she does get it out.
1: Uh, but going back to, to her, her new stuff, the, the song they played, You're a Big Girl Now. Um, I remember that a version of that being on a friend of mine put together a, a Patty compilation. Kathy Vogue put it together a bunch of years ago. And I I swear that was uh, that song was on there. Wasn't it from a film or
0: something? Was it from an Ed Burns movie? I'd have to go back and look it up. But I think it's I think I did one hear of those that.
1: guys, one yeah. of those Eds.
0: And, uh, but I think they said that the song has morphed since then, that it's, 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 it's a different, it's got the same title, but it's really somewhat of a different song.
1: Right. Actually, I think the title changed. I thought it was I'm a Big Girl Now back then, but oh, okay. now it's You're a Big Girl. But
0: did I hear Patty say that, that it was written, the version that was out 20 years ago was written from her perspective, and now it's written more from the perspective of a mother to a daughter? Hmm.
1: I don't remember. So. But that that would certainly make sense, and that would certainly explain the title change.
0: Right. Well, we'll have to find out more about that. All right. Hopefully, we'll find out within a couple of years. I look forward to her records. I think she's put out some very, very good records. Oh, Rumbledoll Rumble Doll was was really superb.
1: I loved Rumble Doll, and I thought, uh, played as Lays was just. I mean, it was very emotional, very, very much a, a roller coaster. And I loved a uh, town called Heartbreak, believe it or not. And I also love uh, the Elvis song. What's what's that one called? Uh, Looking for Elvis.
0: Right. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. Which which they did play. So and I really I really like that one, too.
0: So and I think we should move on now to our main topic, which looks at also a pretty good record.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you can you can say it's a it's a decent record. Kind of broke some ground there.
0: So tonight we're going to look at the 45th anniversary of Born to Run. Of course, we're in August now, and coming up on August 25th, it will be the 45th anniversary of that album's release.
1: Well, it certainly has been a life changer for me. I mean, if uh, if Born in the USA was my gateway to Bruce, this then Born to Run was my was this, was the hard stuff that got me hooked, and it's why I'm still here here right now.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Do you remember when you first heard either the <laughs> song "Born to Run" or the record?
1: You know, I don't. I'm sure I heard "Born to Run" on the radio during the the USA period. I was, I, I think I've I mentioned before, I was pretty much a top forty kid. So, and it was really didn't appear on top forty radio very much except during when he exploded in '84. In but no, I really, I can't remember like the defining moment that. I first heard the intro to Thunder
0: Road or the sax
1: in Jungle Land.
0: See, to me, it, this truly is one of the defining moments of my life. And I think I i think I told the story when I did my guest DJ about 10 years ago on E Street Radio, but I was sitting in a music class. I was must have been about 11 and a half years old, maybe 12. And what would happen is they would bring in, kids in the class would bring in music that they wanted their classmates to hear and I didn't really know much about rock and roll at that point at all and several I was the oldest in my family so I had no older siblings playing stuff for me that makes a a difference (laughs) and a kid brought in a record Uh, it was the Born to Run 45 I believe and I, I was sitting in the class and songs had been playing and I was like ah you know whatever and then suddenly the teacher put on this record and it was the born to run single and it blasted out of the speakers. And I was like, what is this? (laughs) I I couldn't believe it. It literally, I didn't understand necessarily what the song was trying to say, but I just knew that this was something that was making me feel different. And from there, I, I think I got my mom to buy me born to run on cassette And when I listened to that record, I I got it a day or two later. And from the moment I heard Thunder Road through Jungle Land, and I must have listened to that record straight through that first week, I don't know how many times it was a lot. And it, it really did. It changed my life. And certainly there'd be no podcast if not for that. That's true. So that was what, 79 or 80? It probably would have been in early 1980. I know I got born to run and then... For some reason, I don't know if someone gave it to me. I had greetings, and I didn't really get that. And then shortly thereafter, the river came out, and and hungry heart, and and, and the stuff on that record, I, I I got that, and I was definitely as much as you can be a fan of something <laughs> at twelve years old. I I was all in. I born to run w- truly was like a defining moment for me.
1: Yes, I didn't have that that kind of that quite a introduction, or at least that that immediate wow factor but after i got into into him through born in the usa and then i got born to run and it seeped i played it a lot it seeped into my consciousness and it's it's part of my dna at this point
0: um it's interesting because even though we're only a few years apart because you got in through born in the usa your experience is really quite different than mine in that regard
1: Yes, it is. Yeah, uh, you got to discover him before, before he was Bruce. Yeah. He, before he was taken over the world, as as we talked about in our USA, Born in the USA tour episodes, that tidal wave of of eighty four, eighty five is what got me into him. And well, I
0: also I, think it it would have changed my perception because Born in the USA, as we talked about in those episodes, I waited for so desperately, as many people did. And when it finally came out, it was it was such a huge event. And it'd be and it's just interesting that you then came to Born to Run after that. So having heard Born in the USA and Bruce was so big when you first heard Born to Run, do you remember w- what your reaction was? Because it's obviously a different sounding type of record than Born in the USA.
1: It is a different sounding record, but at the same time, it still felt still felt like Bruce, like like born. In, it felt like Born in the USA to me. If only because it was his voice and what he was singing was still was still very relevant to me at the time. I guess one one aspect of, of getting into of not getting into Bruce, and not getting into Born to Run until I was 15 or 16, is that actually four, four, more like 14 or 15 is that the themes explored on Born to Run. You know, it's a town full losers. I'm, it's, I'm pulling out a here when uh, tramps like us. Maybe we were born to run. All that stuff was so those are the feelings I was going through when I was when I was that age and, you know, having a difficult time in high school and just trying to figure out figure out my way. And and his and that music just spoke to me very directly.
0: Yeah, I think it speaks to everyone who listens to Born to Run (laughs) that directly. And let's let's talk about the individual tracks, because I, I think it's interesting to talk about it in the context of what we felt at the time we, we first started hearing these songs, because Thunder Road and I was reading Brian Hyatt's book again today, and of, very fortunately, we're going to have Brian on our next episode, which is our season finale, and you know, he talks about the process, and of course, Thunder Road had been around gestating for a while. I think it was a, initially played live in early 75, right?
1: Well, yes, it, it made its its debut as Wings for Wheels at the, right. at the very famous main point show on february 5th 75 and that was uh, t- t- in some ways i kind of view that as the the start of modern bruce or the, the bruce that w- we would see 75 through 85 yes just in the way that that song became such a it was a debut of the song that became such a cornerstone for for his career over, over the next well i mean i would i was going to say 10 but surely over the next 45 years at this point
0: Oh, I agree. And one of the things that happens around that time is that a new person comes on the scene. And of course, that's John Landau. And he helps shape the song that is Wings for Wheels and helps transform it into what we now is Thunder Road. And one of the things that I love about Thunder Road, and it's interesting that Bruce himself says this, that the intro of the song suggests a new day. And that's what I felt when I heard it for the first time. There's something about it. A new day brings the dawn and possibilities, I think, of anything that can happen on that new day. You can be liberated. And to me, that's just an incredible way to kick off a record.
1: Yes. And what to kind of echo that when Bruce introduced it on Broadway, that's what he said he missed the most about being young was was having the blank, the blank page, which which obviously is not that far a metaphor from from the start of the new day. And so he, he, even he viewed it as, you know, the, the highways, the this two lanes will take us anywhere. Yes. And, and it did.
0: And as you said, a town full of losers will pull an out of here to win it announces it in the first song.
1: Going back to what you said about Landau, I think he was one of the, he was one of the influences on Bruce who kind of tried to mold, get Bruce to modify his, his writing style to not be as wordy as he was on the first two albums to,
0: and to bring out more of the piano and the guitar. Yeah, and he, and musically tighter, because, of course, on Wild and the Innocent, Kitty's back and all had sort of that jazz rock sound to it, and that's gone now by the time we get the Born to Run.
1: Yes, and with all due respect to, to the second album, that was a good thing.
0: Yeah, well, look, the second album's a great album, but... It, it, this is a rock album, and not to say that the second album isn't a rock album. In fact, I'll go as far as to say this is the greatest rock album of all time, in my opinion. Oh, well, um, you're not going to get any disagreement from me there.
1: <laughs> you can't. I I have a hard time thinking of any album that where the eight songs just flow so well together.
0: Well, and that's a remarkable thing that you point out, too. Could, could you imagine if Bruce released an album with only eight songs today? People would be like, why is the album only eight songs? Why isn't it longer? And it's just eight songs of perfection.
1: It really is. Forty. It's like 40 minutes, almost exactly. I think it's like 39.50 or something along those lines. And I remember something Charles Cross wrote in the Backstreet's book where he said almost all of Bruce's albums almost sound like they, they went in. And they recorded them all in a row, and that was it. And and they, because it, it just it just sounds so they sound so effortless, whereas in reality he, they were pulling pulling their hairs out of their heads for months on end in the studio.
0: Yes, this record and, was not effortless. That is for sure.
1: <laughs> no, and and it just shows you, how, you know, how how difficult it is to sound effortless. How about that?
0: Yeah. Well, th- Bruce says in the book, it, he tells Hyatt, I think he spent 13 straight hours overdubbing Electric Guitar on Thunder Road alone.
1: Oh wow! So he was he overdubbing over and over and over again, or was he just yeah, trying to find? The I, I think right they were layering
0: riff? it. We'd have to okay. go back and, and see the exact quote, but I think they were layering it because the song, of course, is very layered. Yes. Um. Well, the whole album, and that's thing. the that's, whole wall of sound.
1: Yeah. Right. That's the the wall of sound, and it it still amazes me at how they they would do that just record the same parts over and over again to get that wall of sound, and it's just. And you don't, and, they, and then they play it live, and there's only one piano, and there's only one one organ, and only you know only three guitars instead of
0: like twenty. Well, of course, of course, Thunder Road when it was first played live in 1975, I wonder if that was one of the reasons why it was just played. Roy on the piano, Bruce on the vocals.
1: Right i I wonder what made him do that switch at that point because i i mean even on on the rest of the album jungle and born to run she's the one everything else is layered just as much if not more so than than thunder road and he but he stripped everything away and as you said he just it was just him and roy and it made for a powerful opener every time he did it
0: see i never thought that they really nailed born to run the song we'll talk more about this when we get to side two but to me in 1975 and even to a certain extent on the darkness tour born to run never sounded as big as it would from the river tour on i think on the river tour they really started to nail born to run what do you think about that
1: i think you're right um there was i would even say it was 84 where it really filled filled those arenas in such yeah. an amazing way and certainly yes. the stadiums and i you know maybe Max's the triggers or the, the the effects on on Max's drums made a big difference, but you know, when they when it was played in those big big venues, it just they it really exploded.
0: Yeah, it was totally explosive on the Born in the USA tour. You're totally correct about that.
1: And I don't hear that on like say the main point seventy five per- no. performance of it. It sounds it sounds like a great like a, like a, a g- excellent song, a great song, but it's not quite there to the level of greatest rock song ever written as, as it was declared 20 years later by what new music, new music express in, in,
0: in, in England. Another thing to point out about this record overall is needless to say, they weren't recording live and, and, i think that that colored bruce's opinion of the recording process and by the time they got to darkness they did record live now of course we know they went through their own torturous process there but eventually and and i do think this is key as we discussed uh for born in the usa by the time he gets eight nine years later when they're recording for born in the usa they've got the recording live process down really good (laughs)
1: <laughs> even if even if it still took him two years to to go from uh, demo to, to release,
0: yeah, but uh, I don't think at that point, and we're getting a little off track, so we'll get back to tenth. <laughs> but I don't think at that point they weren't doing songs. There were certainly no fifty takes of songs. In fact, we know Born in the USA, I think, was recorded on the first take, right?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. pretty much. Yeah.
0: So, but should we move on to Tenth Avenue?
1: Well, before we leave on the road, I just want to okay. say that uh, did you have a high school? yearbook uh quote
0: in your senior year uh you're asking a rig question now a what but question a, a rig question you don't you know the answer to this right
1: i actually i have no idea i was gonna oh. tell you mine i was oh, you're I, gonna tell but i guess you're gonna tell me well, yours first. Me,
0: uh, well I, my quote was from man at the top
1: oh interesting
0: oh okay all right
1: well see mine was show a little faith there's magic in the night oh, that's kind of nice. been i was a i was a late night kind of guy I still am but, uh, you know, that was I didn't want to do it's a town for losers. I'm pulling out of here to win. So I did not want to be insulting to everybody.
0: <laughs> that would be kind of nasty. I don't think people yeah. would have signed your book if you did that.
1: No, no. But anyway, let's let's move on to the next track.
0: So at 10th Avenue, of course, is the story of the E Street Band. This is not news to anyone. No, but you know, you know what? I don't think I ever got that the whole story
1: until the reunion tour. Had he ever talked about it being the story of the band prior?
0: I don't I don't think so. I, I in a way, I, because of the well, certainly because of the lines, Well, the change was made up town and the big man joined the band. I think that that's a big tip-off. Uh, but I don't know if he had talked about it expressly before the reunion era. Okay. All right, that makes sense. But uh, well, I mean, what needless to say, it's, it's, a, it's a seminal song and it took on really much more deeper meaning after the deaths of Danny and then especially Clarence.
1: Well, I, I would certainly say that it was it became a much bigger song starting with the reunion tour, obviously, because it became the, the big the 20 minute uh, band introduction and the whole basically the thesis statement, like, you know, what you need is a band and not just any band. And it kind of it didn't wasn't played much on the rising tour, but certainly came back on the on the magic tour.
0: Of course, 10th Avenue brings about one of the great Miami Steve stories of all time where he comes into the studio and he's not even a member of the band yet. And he's ordering around the horns players. He knows he doesn't like what they're playing, but these guys are much more experienced than he is the Brecker brothers and whoever else was in on the sessions. And Steve comes in and Bruce is like, all right, go for it, whatever you want. <laughs> and he may have been an experience, but he was damn right. And he got a classic riff there. Yeah. He, uh,
1: he, he didn't like, or he didn't think what he was hearing was working and, Bruce said, "You don't like it, do you?" And Steve said, "No." And Bruce said, "Go fix it." <laughs> and then, and then you got the legend where, as soon as he, as soon as Steve arranges uh, the horns, he sings, he actually sings the horn parts to the guys, to the session players, and then Bruce says, "Oh, by the way, I've been to to, to Appel. I've been meaning to tell you, this is a new member of the band." Uh, but of course, when uh, when Brian Hyde interviewed Steve, you know, 30 years later, Steve doesn't remember doesn't remember that part. But uh, you know, when the legend is better than the fact, print the legend. Right.
0: go with the legend. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it does. It is more fun that way.
0: And and then you've got it, it leads into night, and night is such a great song, and I think underappreciated in certain ways. And what what I liked about this one that they really did go for the Roy Orbison sound as Brian Hyatt describes in the book with the double track vocals. And, and there's the great intro to the song Uh, Max's and I love when they play that live Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Clarence is on fire on this song. It's, it's, it's just a great track. And, and to me, when I was younger, while I listened to the album from beginning to end, I never put as much emphasis on tonight. I just knew it was a great tune that I, that I liked, but now especially when we see it played live and so forth it, it's it's much more impactful for me
1: yes i can definitely see that and what i like about clarence about clarence's part is that he burst in like right a few a few seconds after max starts. so it's the whole band it's the whole east street sound in the first 10 seconds of the song because you got roy's great piano i mean i think brian Hyde described it as uh he was almost using it as like as percussion as as in the way he the he was playing the notes so quickly and it just it just explodes on on stage and to me it always sets up kind of uh, it just sets up everything for the rest of the night
0: so to speak (laughs) and of course night has i think been played except for meeting across the river night is probably the least played song on the record I believe you're right, even though I, I don't have the numbers
1: in front of me and I don't know them, but
0: and when, I think And when he when, Ane- when has used it, like on the River Tour, of course it opens the classic New Year's Eve show, you know, again, launching a spectacular night.
1: No yeah, well, pun I intended. Always, <laughs> well, I always look back at the at the Boston 77 run um, that we oh, only know... that's knows. another
0: good one, yeah.
1: Yeah, where I think he'll, he opened the shows with night at most of the... Most of the 77 tour. I say most of it. I know it wasn't every night. Actually, I even think the two archive releases from that tour, neither one opens with night. But it seemed like in in March it was mostly night. And he really built it up, especially at that last show, where are you ready for the final moments before bursting into the song? And I always thought it was such a great opener on the 76 and 77 tours.
0: Yeah, that was pretty amazing. And now let's talk about the next track, which I'd have to say is pretty damn important.
1: Just a little.
0: Hiding out on the back streets. And to me, i it's so hard to choose. What I will say is, as I said, I think Born to Run is the greatest rock album, period. So, of course, I think it's Bruce's greatest album. If I had to choose a song off this record, it probably changes from day to day. But on most days, it's going to be back streets.
1: I have to agree with you 100%. I think that is my my all-time favorite song right there.
0: And I've actually had the you know this uh, our listeners don't know this but you know in recent years I've taken up guitar and one of the songs I play and we've learned I have a great instructor and we break down the songs really carefully and on Backstreets we broke down like literally every note that Bruce plays and it's just it's such an interesting and compelling song and 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 the way it builds and I was reading in Brian's book that it was Landau who suggested to Max that the drumming pattern needed to really evoke Running Scared, Roy Orbison's song. And mm-hmm. there's just something so dramatic about the song. I, it's it's just incredibly powerful. And it, it's a weird experience for me because for so many years, it's been such a major part of my listening experience. To understand it musically, it's really a great joy for me.
1: Well, I can definitely see that. I it says as a listener without absolutely no musical talent or knowledge or at least music, music playing knowledge just the, what i hear the the piano working so well with the organ and then with max's drumbeat, as you pointed out everything builds in the song to, in such a it's i mean in a perfect way let's be honest here and then as you said the guitar works so well <laughs> and then the, the, the solo at, at towards the end it's he blows it away what you know I don't know how much how much I can really say that about that great song that hasn't already been said.
0: Well, what what I will say is that the emotional experience and and Brian got this from Bruce that he, Bruce said the if, if the song evokes the feeling of an outcast and living far away from things. I was in this little New Jersey outpost, and he nailed it. I mean, there's 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 the song has so much angst in it. I think mm-hmm. is the word I would use.
1: Okay, it's i think there's a lot of anger on this album more than i think people really realize i mean certainly compared to something like like darkness but it's i think the anger quotient is pretty is pretty high and this is one of the more angry songs i mean even when just on the studio record and i hated you when you went away you can hear i mean you can feel the anguish in his voice and it's it's hard not to feel it yourself
0: oh i completely agree and of course that was brought out even more in the live versions over the years needless to say the 78 versions with <laughs> the drive all night interlude uh, it, it, just the amount of anguish that that character is experiencing and as it builds to the conclusion but even after that uh, you know i think there have been some incredibly compelling versions of backstreet's in recent years in fact uh some of the 2016 versions were really monster versions. And I always liked, he used it as a moment to allow the audience to sort of salute him when he would stand with and, and hold the guitar up during the intro yes. And, yes. And, and he knows it himself. And, and those are such powerful moments. And I'll tell you another great version of, of the song, the 2012 Stockholm archive release that just came out. I think that's a fantastic version of Backstreet's.
1: Okay, now I'm now I'm going back to trying to think about it in my head. Oh, it's
0: Gothenburg. I'm sorry, it's Gothenburg, not Stockholm, it's Gothenburg. Yeah,
1: I'm yeah, mixing and, up I, the
0: archive releases.
1: It's funny, but I, I knew exactly what you meant. Um, yeah, that's for a for, for a two thousand twelve version. That's that's pretty damn good, but I'm gonna throw something else out there, Hal. Go that ahead. Every performance of the song <laughs> is a, is a is a highlight of the night and it's just it's it's the tension that builds and then that's why for so many years it was played right before the closing song right either rosalita in 78 or or light of day on the reunion tour where it's the the tension and then the release of of rosie or light of day and And that's and that's something he he does he does so well building tension and then releasing and then building it some more and it's, it's like a roller coaster ride which is why we keep coming back
0: and now i would say if anything he doesn't necessarily play it often enough of course he's got so many great songs <laughs> and they rotate you know but like when i was in australia in 2017 and it's funny to think about this because backstreets wasn't played at any of the shows i saw
1: oh interesting okay yeah. all right i remember the, the last the last show i saw which was uh, september 9th 16 in philly very hot night and uh, that was a that was a great version of backstreets
0: oh yeah as i said a few minutes ago to me the 2016 versions of backstreets whatever he was feeling those were top notch
1: and i would make the same argument i think as i think you just did about 2012 but i wanted to throw in the the fact that he would throw he, that he would sing a few lines from dream baby dream in the interlude instead of doing a doing the sad eyes drive all night and that was that was just a i don't want to say it was as powerful as 78 but it was certainly approaching that at least in in terms of uh, of inflation <laughs> take it take it into account inflation for 2012
0: yeah you know what show has a really great version of backstreets with a piece of dream baby dream in it the second fenway, fenway show, too
1: which, yeah yeah <laughs> yes it does and that should be a that should be an archive release and definitely sure well i'm
0: sure it will at some point well the problem is there's so many shows from 2012 that we actually feel should be archive releases and i don't think people will enjoy it if every month is a 2012 release
1: that is true i kind of wish they would just say here's 30 shows and just release them all at one time but uh, i don't think that's going to happen
0: either so and backstreet closes side one of the record and you think it can't get any better and then (laughs) side two opens and of course they could have opened the entire record with born to run but as we were talking about bruce wanted to evoke that feeling of a new day which he he felt he got from Thunder Road. So Born to Run Open Side 2. Six months of recording this song, as I think everyone knows, it went through various versions. They play some of the alternates on East Street Radio. None of them hold a candle to the final version, the release version. It is perhaps one of the most, if not the most perfect rock song that there is.
1: Well, I, I mentioned earlier uh, that Warner to Run was declared by the readers of New Music Express in 95 as the greatest rock song of all time. And it's not it's I can't think of a, of a reason why it shouldn't be. <laughs> of course, I'm biased in that respect, but it really has it all.
0: What I would say about Born to Run, even though it's five minutes ago, I said most days I would probably take Backstreet's if I had to pick one song off the record. That's because of what Backstreet's means to me. But Born to Run, if I was going to explain Bruce to someone and I had to pick one song, it would be Born to Run.
1: If there's one thing that Backstreet's doesn't have is, is a sax solo. And, it, and obviously, Clarence has one of his major, major epic solos in this song. And that's part of the Springsteen sound as well.
0: Oh, it's the defining Springsteen sound. <laughs> I mean,
1: let's be clear about it: sax, piano, the Max's drums, the the and organ.
0: Yeah, uh, this is this is this is it, and <laughs> the heart of the Springsteen-Clemens relationship, I think, is in this song most specifically. And of course, we know it's the album cover. and I think Bruce intentionally did it. I think daring at the time in 1975 to have a black man and a white man on the cover. Uh, you know, and I think he was making a statement with that. Don't you? He was, he really was. Um, when you mentioned that, I go back to
1: somewhat, some of the stuff Bruce was saying on, on Broadway when introducing 10th Avenue, About he and Clarence, they were like, if he was a mystic and he, he believed that they were fighting the lions or, or fighting in, in armies and in centuries past and certainly they are very simpatico on on this
0: song yes and i and i think you're correct in bringing up the broadway version it's it's an important thing to note because the way it was used on broadway summationally
1: is well, i was i was talking about the te- it is the, the 10th Avenue intro on yes, Broadway, not the Born I, to Run song.
0: No, I got what you were talking about, uh, but I'm talking at the end of the show, the way he used Born to Run. Okay. Yeah, it was it was summational, I think, to his entire story, which is interesting because, of course, Born to Run, the song, is released so early in his canon. In that version, in that artistic version of, what, of the story he was telling, Born to Run sums up pretty much his entire career.
1: Right. Well you saying that makes me think of the introduction he used on the, on the tunnel of love express tour about how he wrote this song and he wanted to, he wanted to run and keep on running and, and how he was surprised at how well he knew himself even, even then. As a Uh, youngster. Yeah. And and of course on the tunnel of love tour, he, he stripped it down to just an acoustic for, well, for most of the tour anyway. But he, at that point he was saying that the road really doesn't offer an escape. It's just, you know, you got to find home inside of here somewhere and it's not out there all the time.
0: And the other thing about that acoustic version, he always introduced it as he was playing it acoustic because he wanted to say something new and not repeat himself. And you just think 32 years later now when the song is played every night. And there aren't many songs that I feel that should be played every night in the street band show, even stuff like Badlands and Promised Land and all that. If that rotates, I'm fine with it. But I just cannot imagine an E Street band show without Born to Run played full blast right now.
1: Uh, I can't either. I would I loved hearing the acoustic version on Broadway. I, I loved hearing it when we saw him at the Meadowlands in two thousand five. But but yeah, that's almost the epitome of what the E Street Band and what Bruce and the E Street Band are about is when he counts into that in the Encores and just the the lights go on and I've seen it. For, I don't know how many times I've seen it. I, I don't keep track of that kind of stuff. But every time I feel like it's, it's just spine tingling, even though I've seen it a bunch of times.
0: Yeah. And speaking of just dreams, I mean, <laughs> the hope that one day again soon we'll be standing in an <sighs> arena watching Bruce perform Born to Run, which seems somewhat impossible right now. But uh, as he put it in the sh- in, from my home to yours a few weeks back, it will happen.
1: Uh, I hope so. He's got a...
0: It's almost like he has
1: to stay in shape for that to happen. He has he has to stay in shape to outlast this the COVID and outlast the the quarantine and the lockdowns and get out there and we can we can be be together in an arena again and that's going to be an emotional time.
0: And obviously, I think we know that Bruce didn't foresee a pandemic, but just thinking back to Broadway and the way that Born to Run was used there to tie everything together, think about what a powerful moment it was and in the intro to the song, when he goes back to freehold and the, and the tree is no longer there and what it symbolizes time passes and things die and people die and it's not all in our control, but we continue to go on. And I, and I think that's the point that he makes there we'll go and we'll walk in the sun and hopefully we'll do that one day again soon.
1: Yes. It's a good point. It's a, if he didn't play born to run, it would be like that empty sky in freehold without that tree yeah for us anyway and yeah i i can't imagine it happening at this point
0: well i i do think <laughs> that he will return i are you saying you can't imagine born to run not being played
1: i can't imagine born to run not being
0: played oh yeah no we know <laughs> Born. To, at, at least with the band i feel fairly safe that we will see born to run every time we are lucky enough to see bruce uh, moving yeah. forward well i'm certainly looking forward to the day when yeah we uh we see him in concert
1: again but before we move on, I, I got a little uh, a little glory day story about Born to Run. Okay, go During, ahead. When I was uh, 15 playing Little League Baseball, it was my I would, pl- I would blast a song Born to Run while I got ready for each game. And it must have worked somehow because we actually won the championship <laughs> that year. <laughs> so thank you for the inspiration, Mr. Springsteen.
0: I've got a question for you regarding Born to Run. I don't know if we've ever discussed this. You ready? Um, I'm ready. Is Wendy in the car with him? Does she get in the car? <laughs>
1: You know, I have to say yes, if only because of what he said, how he introduced it on the Tunnel of Love tour about, you know, a guy and a girl get into a car and they just want to keep on running. So I had to just have to think that she was in the car and it was he, him, the singer and and his girl at his side and they're off to off to run to the greener pastures.
0: I totally see that. And I'm not saying that's not what happens, but it's interesting when I was reconsidering the song today, you know, you look at some of the lines I'll love you with all the madness in my soul or someday girl. I don't know when we're going to get to that place, but we really want to go and we'll walk in the sun. That seems like he's making a declaration to her as to what he thinks could happen. Now, that's why I asked the question and I I agree with you. She probably does get in the car, but it it, it is interesting if you really think about it, because that's also a theme that really goes back to even the opening track Thunder Yes.
1: Yes. I think to me, Thunder Road is it's more open ended as to whether she got into the car or not. This one, I think she's she's there and they're ready to just to take off down the highway.
0: It has such a declaration to it. And we know it's it's probably his biggest anthem, I would say, right?
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh,
0: I, I mean, it's the one we're going to remember.
1: The, <laughs> Isn't it the unofficial youth song of New Jersey? <laughs> I
0: think so. Well, it, I mean, it, think about what that says, though, about getting out of New Jersey.
1: Well, John Stewart did a whole bit about that, like, I don't know, 25, 25. 30 years ago. Oh, that really? was actually really funny. Yeah, I think really I remember funny. that yeah. actually
0: now that you're saying that.
1: Yeah, about, yeah. you know.
0: Let's yeah. get the hell out of here.
1: Right. That's that's what we want to say about our home state. Anyway.
0: Now, what does that say as we wind up out of Born to Run? And of course, it goes into She's the One. What do you think that that says?
1: Um, that's, I don't know if there's really a correlation between the two. It just might just be a different character and a, and a different song obviously the different song but a different character and a different girl and doesn't have to necessarily be the the same two people or three people and on all, on all eight songs
0: right well that goes back to I think what we were saying a little earlier about this is the arc of this record I don't know that it's all one character I think it's more a series of vignettes taking place in these locations Uh, obviously the Jersey shore and dreaming of going to the big city.
1: Right. Right.
0: And she's the one is interesting because, and this is also in Hyatt's book, Bruce started, he basically wanted to come up with a song that featured Clarence. So he sort of reverse engineered it. He came (laughs) up first with the music. And as we know, he normally writes lyrics first.
1: If he wanted to come up with a nice signature sax part for, for Clarence, he he succeeded a hundred, a hundred percent. Uh, and you just added the bow diddly beat in there to, to make it, I don't, I don't know what the bow diddly beat adds to it, but certainly I can't imagine the song without it.
0: Well, it gives it a very classic feel, I think. Okay.
1: All right. Yeah. More, more into that bow diddly feel of the, of the blues and, and rock.
0: And the, again, this is a song no about longing, you know,
1: he, Oh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> no boy can fill uh, this no. mysterious space that, you know, this woman he's in pursuit of has
1: no not at all it's uh you're right it's it's a song of longing and i believe uh charles cross or somebody in Backstreets kind of described it as like a loser a loser anthem going for the going for the girl and that it took on less of that feel on, on the tunnel of love tour
0: yeah those were great versions there have been a lot of really cool versions since he brought the song back in 1988 and then in the reunion era I think it has worked really well. The rising tour versions, once he started adding the harmonica at the end, yeah. All, stunning.
1: Yeah, that was that was amazing. It really did add a lot. I mean, well, and harkened back to the versions from from '75.
0: Yes, that's it. Certainly did, and I thought that was highly effective. And the way he's used it in re, more recent years, especially paired with Candy's room, a lot of the time.
1: Seems like it's always paired it, with Candy's room. <laughs> it
0: it it feels so explosive. It does, and yeah. and and what he's saying, he it, it's sort of there's a release I think to those two songs when they're together. It, it's 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 really something, and the crowd obviously goes crazy. I mean, those are two showstoppers.
1: Yeah, yeah. The they seem like to be two very lustful songs, right, right, back to back, and you got there really is a lot more tension in Candy's room, and then there is the more the release, and she's the one you know culminating. In, uh, in Clarence's sax or, or or Jake's sax solo.
0: And I, I think we should point out at the end of this song, he's singing and he's looking for the woman who of course can fill those long summer nights. And, and I take that as another sign. If we think that the album is the course of a day, that this is the evening and leading up to those mysterious hours that occur after midnight. And that makes total sense considering what's next. Well, certainly meeting to me always feels like two o'clock in the morning. Well, and and let's move into meeting. I I agree. It's totally a song. It's funny because there's a song on the record, as we've discussed, called Night. But meeting across the river really does evoke those after hours situations. And and here's a guy maybe getting into some trouble that he doesn't necessarily want to get into, but he feels he has to get into. Would you agree with that?
1: uh, Yes, I would. Yes, I would. And it's, I mean, it's it's a, he's like a small town or a small time, wannabe, you know, mafioso or something. And he's just trying to make a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars really quickly and easily. And you know, and we kind of know how, how that story ends. And it's and it's usually not pretty. And it it just, it just as you said, it just feels like two a.m. when you, when you listen to that song, even if you're listening at three o'clock in the afternoon.
0: You know, and and getting back to the point we were just talking about of course in this song the girl he's with the character is named Cherry as we all know the line is Cherry says she's going to walk because she found that I took the radio and hocked it and uh, so uh, is this all if it is one day and it is one guy or it, that that's another question is it one day in the life of one guy or it's one day in the life of say the big city or the Jersey Shore yeah. Well, it's, it's it's someone on the Jersey Shore heading to the big city. And in fact, uh, it meeting across the river, it, I think Bruce, uh, uh, this is also in Brian's book, that at the time you lived in New Jersey and you weren't that far from New York. And he, of course, has said this on stage as well, but yet it felt like a million miles.
1: Right. And so he, yeah, he would, that was him, the characters breaking out of Jersey, trying to make it into the big time of, of the city. I mean, I think a lot of, there's a, you know, the city was always overshadowing all the suburbs in New Jersey. So so you got this guy trying to go into the city, trying to make some bucks, and those stories don't, don't end well, as I said. No, they do not. And I don't think it, that the story ends well in Jungle Land. No, it does not. No, it does not. And it's great, and that's a, such an amazing pairing. And I guess it wasn't always supposed to be meeting into Jungle, even on the album, but it certainly has worked Tremendously yes. over, over over the years.
0: What drama when it's when they're played together live.
1: It's it's something special, yes.
0: Well, and the thing about it is, although he did fake us at that one night in two thousand and three, but there's also <laughs> the drama because it, it, at the last night, well, the last of the first set of shows in two thousand and three at the Meadowlands, he went from meeting at the Backstreets, but normally there's the drama that the opening notes of Meeting Across the River, you know, Jungle Land is coming, and as much as I like Backstreet's and I think Backstreet's is such an important song, there's something about the live performances of Jungle Land when the audience knows that is coming there. It is just an electricity that is not matched, I don't think, by anything.
1: Right. The anticipation that you can feel throughout the venue, whether it's an arena or a stadium or even or even a theater when he goes into meeting because, you know, you're getting Jungle Land and that's one of the most. Seminal moments of of the night and of his of his recording career.
0: But I also want to talk about the genesis of Jungle Lamb because this goes back to what we were talking about, Landau coming in and tightening things up. As we know, Jungle Lamb was first played in early nineteen seventy-four. I think they have made an attempt at recording it then, and it was quite different from the version that would ultimately wind up on Born to Run. It of course Boom Carter and Davy Sanchez were still in the band at that point, And it really was a much jazzier sort of Kitty's back take on jungle land compared to what would be the final version.
1: Yeah. And I, I wonder how much of that was the, the direction Bruce was trying to go in, which is very likely the reason also, but there's also the fact that Dave Sanchez was, I mean, he was more of a jazz pianist than a rock pianist. And so by the time the fall of 74 rolled around when you got you had Max and Roy there. Roy's style definitely did was not jazzy and was more rock-leaning, and that's how that's part of the
0: the evolution. And listening to those versions, they don't really work particularly well. Now of course we're biased by knowing jungle land as jungle land, but there's no way that the song would be thought of in the way that it is today had he stuck to those original arrangements, and and to that we have to credit Landau for you know for saying we have to tighten these arrangements up, and and make them more rock and roll.
1: Well, I don't I don't think Clarence's big solo was in those original jazzy arrangements.
0: No, no, no they were. He was not. They was not right.
1: And that was that was a major shift right there. I guess he re, he replaced some of the the jazzy breakdowns with more of a. Well, the rock rock saxophone, courtesy of Mr. Clemens, that became his trademark solo.
0: Yeah, and according to Clarence, they spent 16 hours straight recording that solo in the studio as they were trying to wrap up the album. And, uh, you know, as we were saying before, I think that 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 experience for the entire band, of course, Bruce was calling the shots, but led to changes that led (laughs) to them recording more uh, in the live manner that they did for at least from 78 through 84. Right. And I've I've always been amazed at at the way or, or how how they
1: were able to splice or edit his solo together from all those takes. I, I got to give a credit to, uh, I think it was, was it Louis Lahav or was it Tom Panuzio who was in charge of that? And that's just, hats off to them, because I cannot imagine taking 16 hours of Clarence solos and drooling it down to one, I think it's about, what, 90 seconds, two minutes?
0: Yeah. On, on, it, the, on the
1: finished product.
0: It, and it does speak to how much Born to Run, and I don't say this pejoratively, because many albums are creations of, of, of studios, but Born to Run... Really is a creation of the studio process.
1: I can definitely see that. I mean, they were, as, as we said earlier, they were just layering upon layering of, of overdubs and building that wall of sound, and that's not a sound that was easily recreatable when once they hit the stage.
0: No, and as we were saying earlier, it took time for them to get all of these songs down, and you know now they're all needless to say, forty-five years later. Staples,
1: but I would say that Jungleland sounded pretty much on from from the get go.
0: Yeah, once they got the final version, yeah, I, I agree with that. I, as did Backstreets, of course.
1: Yes, I, mean, I think those two songs really—they pretty much nailed it from the from the beginning. I, obviously, they that was after they had worked on them extensively in the studio and not something that had been road tested like Born to Run or, or Thunder Road. And they hit the ground running with with, uh, with with Jungle Land.
0: Now, I've got a question for you. You guys were at the Count Basie in 2008, of course. I, unfortunately, was not, when he did Born to Run Straight Through for the first time. Yes, I guess I was. Uh, and ha- Because to this day, I still haven't seen Born to Run Straight Through, which part of me is like, I've seen every song a million times. And the other part of me is like as much as I don't necessarily love albums played straight through, it would be cool to see Born to Run once. But what, what did you think that first night when when it was played straight through? Uh,
1: I was actually, I, I was hesitant about, I wasn't excited about seeing that album performed in con, in its entirety. Because as you said, I feel like I've seen that, I feel I've seen those songs so many times that it's just a matter of, of sequencing, but we actually went in there and they started playing Thunder Road and it's just the, the momentum kept going. And certainly when, when he brought up Kurt Rahm for, for me across the river, that's when I realized it was really something special.
0: Yeah. And then of course he had played darkness right before it.
1: Right. And then and of course seeing Clarence play on it was, that was, that was a moment too. I mean, it, I didn't, at the time we didn't appreciate, we may not appreciated how much we would miss it, we would miss him when, after, after he was gone, but certainly now it's like, yeah, we saw it with Clarence and that was, that was a big
0: deal. Yeah. That's the other thing. As much as I give Jake tremendous credit, if I saw Born to Run Straight Through today, it would, it's not the same.
1: Of course, part of the thing about the 2009 tour is that the shows, he never really found a a decent flow, a, a decent set list that was cohesive. But when he, when he started playing albums, uh, all of a sudden, there was that natural arc that they all had. And certainly, Born to Run was, was I thought, the best one that I saw.
0: See, the interesting thing, and I always thought this, even though I never saw a Born to Run show, I would have loved I, if he'd opened the show with the record. You just come out. And, and mm-hmm. in fact, you and I saw Pearl Jam do that when they did 10 as a surprise but it would have been so cool if he just came out and Thunder Road launched the show, and and they just went straight through Born to Run, and even you you could even take a break after that. In fact, I saw Arcade Fire do that the first time they did Funeral. They played, they came out as a surprise, played the entire record, and then took a break. So, it, but uh, interesting that he never did that. Well, I think
1: he wanted to set up the album. He wanted to have a few minutes to kind of say, "This is what we were doing." Right. we wanted to we wanted to do something special for the end of the tour I think that was his his exact line and and then once the album finished he he really gave he gave the band time to to experience the audience's you know appreciation and a, and a, and a, and a shout out to, to Danny yeah, that's true. One thing that truly really makes this album unique at least for for Bruce is that there aren't any outtakes that we've heard anyway. That would fit this album, or even or or improve it. I I think any outtake that we know of, "Lonely Night in the Park," "So uh, you Young and in Love," "Lena Let Me and Be love, the One," uh, "Lovers in the Cold." I don't think any of them would have could have replaced anything, and, and the album would would have been as strong. I think it would have any of those songs would have weakened them. Whereas certainly on on albums like the like the River and and, and Darkness. Some of those outtakes would have made the album better, but not not for Born to Run. And,
0: and he knew that, and that's why the record is only eight songs. There certainly was room for more.
1: That's true, that's true. And I think, yeah, I, I mean, Lonely Night in the Park was definitely a better song when it came back, you know, a few years later as I Want to Be With You. Uh, but, you know, maybe So Young, so young and In Love would it, would it, could have replaced Night in some way, but... I don't think it would it well, have. Well, it's hard.
0: It's hard. Unlike a Born in the USA, where we know there's 82 songs and everyone's got their favorites, and literally he had. 20 songs that could have been hits interchangeably if they had been on the album and the, because it, I was presuming they would have had board in the USA and dancing and those songs, the album was going to be a mega hit. So whether it was Bobby Jean or whether it was none, but the brave probably didn't matter here. I don't see that you could plug any of these songs in, as you're saying. I mean, I, I it, to me, it's, it's, it's the perfect record and it's yes, the, yes the sum of its parts as great as what's, what's amazing about this record is as great as each individual song is the album in total is even bigger.
1: Yes, definitely. Definitely. It's one of the, it's, it's the powerful combination of all eight songs that just build up, that just make up such a, such a great statement.
0: Born in USA, which of course I think would be the most obvious comparison, which of course is also a magnificent album and, and, as we know, the biggest hit of his career, the songs there, as I say, not only are they a little interchangeable, the songs are, I think the, the hits, they they are hits. These songs on born to run really aren't hits. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, and there was, there there certainly wasn't any
1: kind of top 40 single on here, especially, I guess, born to run may have cracked the top 20. I don't don't even know where it peaked on the charts, but it certainly wasn't a mega hit along the lines of Dancing the Dark or Glory Days.
0: No, but even if you take even songs that on Born in the USA weren't singles, No Surrender, No Surrender, as we discussed, I think at the time, could have easily been a number one hit. Nobody as great as song as Jungle Land is, nobody is sitting there going, well, if they had released Jungle Land as a single, that was going to be a number one hit.
1: Right, and then they they talked about born to, about trying to edit down Born to Run to make it more, I guess, three and a half minutes. And Bruce apparently just laughed at some of those results. And yeah, I can't imagine that song without without any of its current elements.
0: Yeah, no, it, it the the songs are perfect in their execution, and there really was no way to make them magically hits and as we know he was under a lot of pressure when born to run got underway and needless to say there was a lot of critical success the album was successful they didn't get the top 10 hit that perhaps he was he would have loved to have but of course that would come later
1: well it's interesting that we talk about how perfectly realized it is and as we mentioned earlier it was a torturous process and there aren't a lot of outtakes, but there are a lot of alternate versions that really add to the story.
0: Yeah, we touched on that a little bit when we were talking about Born to Run and all the various versions of that song. I think there's the double-tracked version. I, we couldn't even begin to list them all. We'd run out <laughs> of time. But there were a lot of different versions of Born to Run. And well, well, no-
1: well, certainly, well, not to interrupt you, but yeah. certainly the biggest one was just the, the the addition of strings I mean, yes. adding a whole oh, right. orchestra yeah.
0: That's a good point, yeah
1: which, which I believe he also did on Backstreets.
0: Yeah, well, there's also numerous alternates on Backstreets. They've appeared on bootlegs over the years And E Street Radio occasionally plays them They actually play the alternates quite a bit More than I would expect
1: <laughs> You know, I did hear the one of the Born to Run alternate takes today So yeah, you're, uh, you're 100% correct there
0: I think the most notable alternate Is the Thunder Road acoustic version
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the one that he kind of he kind of uses that feel. It's a very brooding version of the song that he I think that's was the basis for the solo versions that he he used to open the tour in seventy five and of course, on subsequent subsequent years when he did it just solo piano.
0: I can see that. And one of the things that I recall, correct me if I'm wrong, at one point he he and he has said this somewhere. I can't remember where that he was going to open the record with the thunder road acoustic and end with the full band version again, in this concept that the album was a single day that it was going to begin and end with the same song, but different versions.
1: Yeah. I remember that too. I think I want to say that was from Dave Marsh's born to run book, but I could be wrong, but that certainly has been a part of our, you know, what we've known for many years now.
0: If you could yeah. sum it up, what, what, what is the album? I already called it the, In my opinion, the greatest rock album of all time. It's certainly the most important album in my life. In my final days, my final moments, you know, that'll be if I if I listen to music and I had (laughs) hopefully I'll know what's going on. It would be what I want to hear. Do you have any final words on it? The level of importance to you?
1: Well, as I believe I said in the end of our last episode, that it's it's just become part of our DNA moments of that album are just are so intertwined with with my life as i mentioned uh, you know my high school senior yearbook quote was, th- was from thunder road uh, i used born to run as a as a motivational song and then my, when my when claudine and i got married we entered the the venue to to 10th avenue freeze out so i it recall is, that i i know you were there um but it just shows that it's so ingrained and in, in, in our lives, um, that is, you know, I can't
0: imagine my life without <laughs> Yeah, no, if you think about <laughs> what, funny what songs mean to people, it, it, it really, this album specifically, it's, it really, it's mind boggling. And, and I guess the only thing we can say is to Bruce, should he be listening? Thank you for this record. Uh, it sounds a little corny, but it, it really, uh, how many people's lives w- are improved by this record existing?
1: just changed changed totally I can't imagine in my life had I not been become obsessed with this album and, and with, him, with with his career
0: you know and, and as I said I mean it's a 11 12 year old boy to be exposed to this for the first time and it it's it's sort of opened the world up in a way that previously hadn't been there and and as we have said several times it's a, it's a remarkable power and and I think that's the last thing I'll I'll, I'll say about this record. Okay. No, that's, yeah,
1: it's, it's a power. It's a powerful record and you know, yeah, it's, it would be my desert Island or my final moments. Listen.
0: Yeah. So, and let's talk about the next episode, a little preview, as I oh, yeah. already said, we're going to have Brian Hyatt, author of Bruce Springsteen, the stories behind the songs on, of course, also senior writer for Rolling Stone we are so thrilled that he is joining us, and we think that that's going to be a, a great listen. So, hopefully, you'll join us. That's going to be the last episode of season one of None But the Brave, and we'll be back with season two, probably uh, right around Bruce's birthday.
1: That'll be September twenty third for those of us, those of you without a calendar.
0: Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I assume everyone doesn't. I kind of
1: did. I kind of did too. Wait, was, it's not I a national a holiday. Sunday. You know, it should be, but it's last year should have been on well, the seventieth, but. Oh, well.
0: And perhaps by then we'll have some news. (laughs) Let's not go there. Fingers (laughs) always crossed. And uh, let's just finish with our usual bit of business. None But The Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. You can subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice, Apple, Spotify, Google, it's on all of them. And you can find us on the web at nonebutthebravepodcast.com and on Twitter, we're at nbtbpodcast.
1: So for Hal Schwartz, on am Phil saying thanks again for listening, and
0: I'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the
1: host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast.